Let's pray together. Father, would you now use the psalm that's before us to break the chains of idolatry in our lives and to convince us that the path to pleasure and life is that of feasting ourselves on you. So help us, we pray, to know you and free us from all that, that binds us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I would invite you to open your Bible this morning to Psalm 106. Psalm 106. And as you turn there, I would like to propose a way for you to think about the whole Bible, or at least you know, one, way to, one way to think about the story of the Bible. So uh, in, in Luke, Luke presents this genealogy of Jesus where he works, he works all, he starts from Jesus and then he works all the way back to Adam. And when he gets to Adam, he refers to Adam as the son of God. So we can think of Adam in the Garden of Eden as God's son. And what God's son does in the Garden of Eden is he rejects God's instructions, he refuses to trust the Lord, and as a result, he's exiled from the Garden. And then later in Israel's history, uh, the Lord tells Moses to go and, and say to Pharaoh, Israel, the nation, is my firstborn son. Let my son go. And if you don't let my son go, then I'm going to kill your son. And you, you know what happens at the Exodus. The firstborn of Egypt are struck down and God liberates his firstborn son. So in a sense, the firstborn son of God, it's almost like the new Adam, is put into a new Garden of Eden when Israel comes into the land of promise. And then the new Adam does the same thing that the original Adam had done. He refuses to trust the Lord. He refuses to believe God's promises. And as a result of his transgression, he's exiled from that new Eden situation. And then later in Israel's history, you remember what the Lord said to David? He said, I will raise up your seed after you, and he will be a son to me, and I will be to him a father. And, and it's like what God is saying is, Adam was my son, Israel was my son, now the descendant of David, and ultimately this is going to be fulfilled in Jesus, is going to be my son. And as we proceed on the way to Jesus, eventually, as I mentioned a moment ago, the nation is exiled from the land, and as they're exiled, they get these promises that they're going to return to the land. And as they're promised that they're going to return to the land, the prophets make it sound like really what's going to happen is they're going to return all the way to the Garden of Eden. And that's where you get that, that language of the lion lying down with the lamb and eating straw like the ox and, and, and these sorts of things. And the nursing child playing by the hole of the cobra. No more enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. But the return to the land isn't a return to Eden. Eventually, it takes the coming of Jesus. And what Jesus does is he sets in motion what's ultimately going to be the return to Eden, but it's going to be an, an entrance into a new and better Garden of Eden in the new heavens and new earth. So that, there's the big story of the Bible for you, okay? And what we have in Psalm 106 is a, a psalm that is responding to parts of that story from the past, looking forward to the fulfillment of parts of that story that are yet in the future. And this psalm, Psalm 106, you, you may have noticed as you, as you look at the psalms, 
that the 150 Psalms are divided into five books. And if you look at the end of 106, before 107, it says book five. Okay, so we're right at the end of book four of, of the Psalter. And uh, the story that we've been seeing unfold at the end of book three in Psalm 89, we had this Psalm, Psalm 89, about the destruction of Jerusalem. And then we had these uh, reaffirmations of the promises to David. And now here at the end of Psalm 106, look down at 106.47, where the psalmist is going to say, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations. This psalm is written from the perspective of an Israelite who has experienced the nation being exiled, driven into the nations, and now he's crying out to the Lord, essentially saying, Bring us back from exile. And if you've been here, you know that we've looked at Psalms 104, 105, and 106. And I, let me just draw your attention briefly to the way that these three psalms are connected. Look at the end of Psalm 104, where in, at the end of verse 35 it says, Praise the Lord. And then look at the end of Psalm 105, 105, 45, Praise the Lord. First words of 106, Praise the Lord. Last words of 106 in verse 48, praise the Lord. In Hebrew, that's hallelujah, right? And so it, it ends 104, it ends 105, and then it opens, and, it begins and ends 106. You also have, um, look at the first words of 105, oh, give thanks to the Lord. And then look at the second phrase of 106, oh, give thanks to the Lord. And then 107 is going to begin the same way. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. What these, these repeated phrases are here to bind these psalms together. And when we looked at Psalm 104, what we saw is that the psalmist was meditating on creation. And then in 105, he was thinking about the promises that God made to Abraham and, and the exodus from Egypt. And now in 106, what he's going to do is he's going to look back over Israel's history and what he's going to highlight are these ways that Israel sinned. Now, why is he doing this? He's looking at the past to look forward to the future. He's going to look at the way that Israel sinned in the past, the way that Israel failed to believe and committed idolatry. And the reason he's looking at these things is to try to teach people as we, as we look for this future salvation that God is going to do, that's now been fulfilled in the cross of Christ and, and we're anticipating the, the completion of it in the new heavens and new earth, what he's doing is he's trying to free us, all of his audience, from the sins of Israel. So I would invite you now to look with me at Psalm 106. And you have in your, in your bulletin an insert that gives you the chiastic structure of this psalm. And we'll look at the corresponding parts of this song, the way the, way the, the opening verses match the concluding verses. So the psalm opens with the psalmist um, praising the Lord and pleading for deliverance. So Psalm 106 verse, verse 1, praise the Lord. And again, I would encourage you to think about how remarkable this is. This is an exiled Israelite. This is an Israelite who is not seeing the promises fulfilled. He is not living where he wants to live. He's in exile. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not in his hometown. He's, he's enslaved to a foreign power. And his response is, God is going to keep his promises to us. Let's praise the Lord. This is a command to a group of people. 
praise the Lord. And then he repeats himself. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. And now he's going to give us two reasons to give thanks to the Lord. First, for he is good. Altogether, with, with no exceptions, he is good. Second, second reason to praise the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, for his steadfast love endures forever. And we've seen, as we've looked at Psalms 104 and 105, how that steadfast love began at creation, and it will continue to the new creation and the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. And then in verse 2, he asks this rhetorical question. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Well, what's he doing as he asks this question? He's inviting us again, he's just coming up with a new way to do this, inviting us to celebrate all that God has done. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? And then verse 3, this word blessed at the beginning of verse 3 is the same word for blessed that you have at Psalm 1, 1. Uh, blessed are those who don't do these things, but who uh, meditate on the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Now, he's stating a truth here that he's going to illustrate the opposite of as he continues through the psalm. So let me just, let me, let me take that word blessed and insert for it another way it could be rendered, happy. And I'm going to challenge you to believe this. Happy are the people, and then skip to the second line, who do righteousness. This psalmist is going to make a radical claim as he, as he proceeds through the psalm. What he's going to argue is that sin is a choice to reject pleasure, which goes against everything that we think. Because we think that sin is so attractive because it's going to be pleasurable. And what the psalmist is saying is, no, it's the other way around. When you choose to sin, you are choosing to reject pleasure and to embrace pain. And the psalmist is saying, blessed are those who do righteousness. Do you believe him? Do you believe that happiness is righteous action? And then look at what he says in verse 4. Here's where he gets into the plea for salvation. So he starts off praising the Lord and talking about how good it is to obey the Lord, right? And now he's, he's going to the plea for salvation. He says in verse 4, Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. What he's saying is, God, when you keep the promise that you made to Abraham, and when you do this new exodus work of salvation, and you bring us back from exile... And ultimately, when you accomplish the, the fulfillment of all salvation and you take your people all the way back to the Garden of Eden to enjoy your very direct presence, when you do that, remember me. He's saying, let me be included on this great salvation you're going to do. And then he continues there at the end of verse 4. He says, help me. Um, literally, visit me. Visit me. Come to me. When you save them, when you save your people, come to me. And then here's why in verse 5, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones. And here again, he's challenging us. What's the way to prosperity? Is the way to prosperity theft? Is the way to prosperity cheating people? Is the way to prosperity ripping people off? Or is the way to prosperity righteousness? and the enjoyment of God's goodness. 
And, and the psalmist is saying, when you save your people, I'm going to see their enjoyment of the good life. So show me favor when you save them that I may look on the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may be glad in the that I, may be, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. So those first five verses there, the psalmist is praising God, and he's asking to be included when God saves his people. He does the same thing at the end of the psalm. Look down at verse, verses 47 and 48. I've already drawn your attention to verse 47. We'll look at it again. Verse 47, save us. O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations, all the nations to which he scattered them when they were exiled from the land, that we may give thanks to your holy name. That's verse 1 again. O give thanks to the Lord. And glory in your praise. And then verse 48, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And that's just another way of saying what he said in verse 1. Praise the Lord. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. So he opens and concludes in the same way with these praises and these, these uh, requests for deliverance. Now the next section in verses 6 through 12 of Psalm 106 is instructive for us because earlier in this service, uh, Todd came up here and he read from Leviticus chapter 26. And, and if you noticed, what Moses was saying to Israel was, you're going to enter the land, you're going to break the covenant, and you're going to be driven into exile. But from exile, when your uncircumcised heart is humbled and you confess your sins and the sins of your fathers, the Lord says, I will remember the covenant that I made with Abraham. Now look at what the psalmist does. He does exactly what Moses said to do in verse 6. He says, both we and our fathers have sinned. The psalmist is confessing the sin of Israel just as Moses instructed Israel to do. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Now what he describes should be convicting to every one of us in this room because we are all guilty of what this psalmist confesses here. Verse 7, our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Here's what he's saying. Israel saw the plagues that fell upon Egypt. Israel saw the way that God humbled the Egyptians and struck down the firstborn of Egypt, but they didn't learn from that. It's like, you know, last week we talked about uh, Casey at the bat. It, it's, it would be like um, my, my little uh, nephew Levi has been telling me about this player for the Yankees named Aaron Judge. I think that's his name, right, Levi? Uh, Aaron Judge is, is on fire in the major leagues. It would be like seeing Aaron Judge hit all these home runs and then him coming to the plate and you thinking, oh, he's just going to strike out. You haven't learned from what he's been doing, right? But the Lord is infallible, and he never fails. And they see him deliver them time and again, and then they get to the Red Sea, and here comes the army of Pharaoh. And do you remember how Israel reacted? Their words were, did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us here? That's what they said to the Lord. They did not 
consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. The psalmist is saying, Israel should have learned. And the same is true in our lives, isn't it? You can look back over the history of your life, and you can see the way that when you obey the Lord, things go remarkably well, and you are joyful and happy and satisfied and at peace and content. And when you, for, when you begin to think, he's not going to deliver me, he's not going to provide for me, he's not going to satisfy this yearning that I feel, you go into sin and you face his wrath. So this is what this psalmist is going after. He's trying to break this sin in our lives. Look at verse 8. Yet he saved them for his namesake. The psalmist is saying God didn't save Israel because Israel deserved it, because Israel had earned it. He saved them to make a great name for himself, that he might make known his mighty power. And then verse 9 sounds like Psalm 104, verse 7, where the Lord rebuked the waters and, and they fled. He does, it, he does it at creation to cause the dry land to appear in Psalm 104. And now he does it at redemption in Psalm 106. He rebuked the Red Sea and it became dry. And he led them through the deep as through a desert. The deep places of the sea, they walked through the way that a person walks through a desert. Verse 10, so he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. And verse 12 is what the psalmist wants us to do. Then they believed his words. They sang his praise. That's the way we should respond to the Lord, and that's the way we need to continue to respond to the Lord. And as we go forward, we see how short-lived Israel's response of faith and praise was. So verses 6 through 12, that's all about the conquest of Egypt at the Red Sea. There's going to be a corresponding section at the end of the psalm. We won't look at it now, but you can, you can see it on your bulletin insert. There's a corresponding section about how Canaan conquers Israel. So, so there's conquest, uh, second and second to last. Look with me at verses 13 through 18. Verse 13, they soon forgot his works. This is just like the middle of verse 7 that says, they did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love. Verse 13, they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but they had, verse 14, a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to test in the desert. This is referring to the way that as soon as Israel crossed through the Red Sea, they get delivered from Egypt against all expectation. They come through the Red Sea. Nobody expected that to happen. That was impossible. And now they get out into the desert. And, and do you remember what they said? They said, we remember all the good food we had in Egypt. They didn't have good food in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. And they're now liberated, inventing this false narrative of how good life was back when they were slaves. They had a wanton craving in the wilderness. Now, um, we should think about this because 
we need food, don't we? This is not a desire for something wicked necessarily. People need food to survive. But what's happening here is Israel is still not learning, and they're not trusting the Lord to, to meet the, the, the valid needs that they have. They had a wanton craving in the wilderness, and their desire for food put God to the test in the desert there in verse 14. The way that they put God to, to the test is they assumed that, that God was not going to meet their needs. They should have assumed if he brought us out of there, he's good, he's going to provide for us, which is the same assumption that we should make. When we get tempted to evil, when we get confronted with opportunities to sin, or what, whatever the case may be, our assumption should be, when it looks like we don't know how we're going to be provided for, our assumption should be, he didn't spare his own son. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? They had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. Then verse 15, he gave them what they asked. The Lord gave them manna from heaven and he gave them quail even. They wanted meat after they had bread and, and the Lord provided quail. And then the second half of verse 15 reads, but he sent a wasting disease among them. I like the, the way the King James renders this. It's, it's a more literal translation of the Hebrew. The King James says, he sent leanness into their soul. Now, here's what I think the psalmist is saying, if, if we take it that way. He sent leanness into their soul. The Lord met their physical need, but he exacerbated their spiritual ache. They had leanness of soul even though they ate. And the reason they had leanness of soul is because they still weren't trusting the Lord. They got what they physically needed. He gave them manna from heaven. He gave them quail. He gave them water from the rock. But they weren't looking to him. They, they weren't trusting and rejoicing in him. And so he made their souls lean. He, he made them hungry, unsatisfied. They wanted food. Verses 16 through 18, they wanted power. The, the, I think these, these uh, failures that are being rehearsed here are strategically arranged. The first two here in verses 13 through 18 are about food and power. Verse 16, when men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened up and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. You can go back and read this story in, in Numbers chapter 11, where the people of Israel, they grumble against Moses, and then, and then these two guys, Dathan and Abiram, they, they lead a rebellion, and, and these guys are, are challenging the authority of Moses and Aaron because they want power. They want influence. And not only... Does God answer these wicked actions with leanness of soul? He answers them with devastating wrath. These guys are destroyed. They're consumed. Uh, this section on food and power in verses 13 through 18 has a matching section on sex and water that we'll look at later. As we consider what we've just looked at, let me just note here. 
that the only way for us to get our cravings under control is to feast ourselves on the Lord and trust that He will always meet our needs. The only way to get our cravings under control, verse 14, they had a wanton craving in the wilderness. The only way for us to deal with that is to feast ourselves on the Lord and believe that He's always going to meet our needs. Uh, This brings us in verses 19 through 23 to the center uh, two sections of this psalm. And you can see how uh, this is set off in verses 19 through 23 and 24 through 27 on your bulletin insert there. And here, what what the psalmist is going to talk about is the golden calf that the people made at Mount Sinai. What this golden calf shows is that everyone worships. Everyone worships. Those who refuse to trust the Lord and worship Him are going to debase themselves with idolatry. So so verses 19 through 23, uh, the, the psalmist is trying to show how absurd it was that Israel would do this. Look at verse 19. They made a calf in Horeb. The reason he puts it this way is because he wants to strike us with how stupid it is that people would worship something of their own making. They made a calf in Horeb and worshiped a metal image. Um, you, could, you could translate this. They worshiped the figure of an ox. I'm sorry, that's in verse 20. They exchanged the glory of God for the figure of an ox or a cow that eats grass. They've exchanged the Creator God the one who made the world, the one who made them, the one who saved them from Egypt for the depiction of a beast. The the psalmist wants us to feel how, how foolish this is. This is a terrible bargain, this exchange. This is a ripoff. A cow that eats grass, an ox that eats grass cannot even begin to be compared with the creator and redeemer of the world. How could Israel have made such a bad deal? Why would they do this? The psalmist explains in verse 21, they forgot God, their Savior. That's how we come to make that bargain. We forget God. We forget God and we think, I'll come up with something that will satisfy me. I'll come up up with something that will stimulate me. Maybe they were able to fashion that ox or that cow such that it was really, really enticing. Maybe they were able to tie it to some Egyptian cultural narrative that made it seem so hip and cool and the right thing to do. It was still stupid. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. And then verse 23 recounts what happened in Exodus 32, verse 10. You remember the Lord said to Moses, get out of my way, Moses. I'm going to destroy this people and I'm going to start over with you and make a great nation of you. So verse 23, therefore he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Uh, what, What happens here? is that Moses pleads with the Lord, and, and we see this, this um, sequence of events that, that, that portends, it prefigures what's going to happen when Christ dies on the cross. 
Because the only thing between the nation of Israel and the destructive wrath of God is God's chosen one. Look there at verse 23. Had not Moses his chosen one. Do you remember what the voice from heaven said at the transfiguration? Uh, When Peter said, uh, Lord, I'll make these three booths for you. The Lord said to Peter, this is my chosen one. Listen to him. This is very important, this use of this term chosen one, because just as Moses is the chosen one, the holy man, interceding between the wrath of God and the nation, Jesus is the ultimate chosen one, the holy one, who's going to intercede between the wrathful God and the sinful people, and he's going to propitiate and allay that wrath and do away with it altogether through his death on the cross. So there's Moses standing in the breach, interposing, turning away God's wrath. The only thing that kept Israel from experiencing the just consequences of their idolatry was Moses interceding on their behalf with the righteous God. And we can say this, too, about verse 21. They forgot God their Savior. The only way that idols can can become attractive to us is for the living God to be forgotten. That calf is only going to look like something worthy of worship when they have forgotten God. So we have idolatry there in verses 19 through 23, and we have unbelief in verses 24 through 27. And what the, psalm, the way the psalmist puts this is so instructive to us. Um, the, the incident that he has in view that he's talking about in verses 24 through 27, you remember Numbers chapter 13. In Numbers 13, they sent these spies into the land, and the spies come back, and, and Caleb and Joshua are saying, the land is ours. God has given the Canaanites into our hands. We can go up and take the land. And the other spies, you remember what they were saying? They're saying, oh, the people that live over there are big. We look like grasshoppers in their sight. We're little compared to them. Their cities are strong. and for, Yeah, it's a, it's a good land. It flows with milk and honey. But they're overwhelming. We, there's no way for us to conquer them. And Joshua and Caleb and Moses and Aaron, they plead with the people. No, God has given us them into our hand. God has given us the land. Let us go up and take it. And the Bible says that the people refused to listen to Joshua and Caleb and Moses and Aaron. And they appointed a leader to return to Egypt. Their unbelief was a rejection of the good land that God had promised them. Look at, look at verse 24. Then they despised the pleasant land. You could translate that. They rejected the land of delight. Our sin is a rejection of the pleasure that God means for us to enjoy. We think, we think, oh, things will be great in Egypt. Let's get a leader. Let's go back to Egypt. It's not going to be good. That leader is not going to be like the Holy One, Moses. That leader is going to take us back to Egypt and sell us into slavery. It's a bad deal. Don't make that bargain. God says, uh, if you... Uh, forgive those who wrong you, you will be forgiven of your sins. I think because uh, it's only the regenerated heart, the born-again heart, that can forgive. And when we forgive others, 
uh, it, it shows evidence we're forgiven of God. In other words, you forgiving somebody doesn't earn your forgiveness. It shows that you already have that forgiveness, right? This is what we think. That person wronged me. I'm not letting go of this grudge. That person wronged me, and he's going to know that I don't appreciate him. And I'm going to show that I don't appreciate him in the cold treatment that I give him. And what we're doing is we're, re we're rejecting the freedom, the joy of being rightly related to everybody in our lives. We're rejecting the good land, and we're choosing slavery in Egypt. And, and you could apply that all over the place. God says, one man, one woman, for life. Uh, there was a story this week, or, or uh, it was a study, um, and uh, these people did this sociological study, and what they found was, I mean, it's, I'm just relating to you, uh, sociological facts, okay? This is the data, all right? Um, people that are married um, are more frequently intimate in their marriage than adults who are not married. God says, one man, one, and people who are faithful in their marriage have it even better, right? They're happier. They're satisfied. People that don't cheat on their spouses. God says, look, here's the way to pleasure. And we say, I think I'll take this path to slavery. I think this, I'll take this path that will ruin my life and ruin the lives of everybody that's close to me. It's exactly what Israel is doing here. They despise the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. God is... Those commands in the Bible, those are promises that you're going to have the good life if you do what I'm telling you to do. You do what I'm telling you to do, you're going to have a great life. They despise the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. And then they murmured in their tents and did not obey the voice of the Lord. I think the, the voice of the Lord here is Joshua and Caleb and Moses and Aaron saying, the land is ours, let's go up and take it. And then you remember, uh, interestingly... Uh, just as the Lord had said he would destroy them, in Numbers 14, 12, the Lord says it to Moses again. After they refuse to go up and take the land, the Lord again says to Moses, get out of my way, Moses. I'm going to wipe them out and make a great nation of you. And again, Moses intercedes with the Lord and turns away his wrath. And yet, uh, the Lord said, as I live and as all the earth will be filled with my glory, not one of these people who has seen my deeds, is going to enter into the land that I've promised. So that whole generation, for 40 years they wandered in the wilderness until they had all died. Verse 26 is talking about this. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness. Now that, that fall in the wilderness, that's referring to the wilderness generation. But the righteousness applied there, it ensures righteousness in the future. So look at the end of verse 27. Or, or the rest of verse 27, and would make their offspring, that's their descendants, fall among the nations, scattering them among the lands. That's talking about the exile, scattering them. So God's justice against the wilderness generation guarantees his justice against the nation that goes into the land and breaks the covenant and, and commits idolatry and refuses to believe. Okay, so here at the center of the psalm, we've got a section on idolatry. Verses 19 through 23, and then a section on um, uh, unbelief there in verses 24 through 27. A failure to believe that God meant good for them. Idolatry and unbelief are two sides of the same coin. If you don't worship the Lord, it's because you don't believe He's what's best. 
And if you don't believe, you're not going to worship him, but you will worship something. And what you worship will either enslave you or liberate you. To reject God is to embrace an idol. To reject obedience is to embrace pain. And just as uh, the idolatry in the making of the golden calf, is, it's, it, it's just like, it's paralleled by the rejection of the land of promise. Truly the, the same thing, right? Land of promise, don't want that. I'll take slavery in Egypt. Living God, don't want that. I'll worship an image of a cow that eats grass. In this next section, verses 28 through 33, he talks about Baal Peor. Look at, look at verse 28. Then they yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor. Now, he doesn't go into this, but back in Numbers 25 and in Numbers 31, we read about how Balaam, this false prophet who had been summoned uh, from, from the east to come and curse Israel, he, he couldn't curse them because God had promised to Abraham, um, I'm going to bless you, and those who curse you I will curse, and everybody that blesses you I will bless. And so Balaam gets there and he starts trying to curse Israel, and he says, how can I curse those whom God has blessed. He has spoken and I can't overturn it. And so Balaam can't curse Israel. But what Balaam does is he advises the king of Midian. And he says, look, this is the only way you're going to be able to over the, overcome this people. You need to send in lascivious women and entice the men into sin. And, and once you get them committing sexual immorality, they'll start committing idolatry. And then their God will break out in wrath against them. And that's exactly what happened. So, so there's this pairing in the Bible, very frequent pairing between idolatry and sexual immorality. They yoked themselves to the Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. Back in Numbers 25, it talks about how the Moabite women came in and enticed the men of Israel to start offering sacrifices to the Baal of Peor. Illicit sex will not... It will not keep the promises that it makes to you. It's going to promise you pleasure and life and freedom and joy. It's going to give you pain and death and slavery and misery. It's going to give you the opposite of what it promises. And, and, and the only way, I think, the only way for us to guard ourselves against all the enticements to elicit sex around us is to worship the living God to believe his promises, to trust that the path to life that he has set before us is indeed the path to satisfaction. Not only do you get leanness of soul, verse 15, when you disobey, you provoke God's wrath. Verse 29, they provoked Yahweh the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. And then look back at, back at verse 23, Therefore, he said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach. Now look at verse 30. Then Phineas stood up and intervened. Do you remember what Phineas did? There's this Israelite man, and he's taken this Moabite woman into his tent to commit adultery with her right out in front of everybody. And Phineas, the Lord says, he was jealous for what I'm jealous about. And Phineas takes a spear, and he runs them both through, kills them both, puts, executes them visits the wrath of God upon the iniquity. He intervenes, and the plague that is spreading through the camp is stayed. It's stopped. 
And then the Lord talks about how he's going to reckon this as righteousness to Phineas. Look at Phineas, look at verse 31. That was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. This is exactly what Numbers 25, 10 through 13 details. Um, so Moses interceded in prayer. Phineas interceded in action. And again, I think this is really pointing forward to the way that Jesus Jesus intercedes in prayer and in action. He intercedes both by praying to the Father on our behalf and by going to the cross. And then he will intercede when he returns to visit destruction on all his enemies. Uh, Earlier, we saw Israel's craving for food and power. Here we see their craving for sex. And then look at verse 32, water. Verse 32, they angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. It's another occasion where, in spite of everything they've seen, Israel out there in the wilderness is grumbling against the Lord, saying awful things about God. So it's like there's this pattern in their lives. They make a false assumption. God's not going to provide for me. And then they start attributing false motives to the Lord. He brought us out here to kill us. And then they start making up this false story in their minds. If we'll go back to Egypt, we'll be happy. And the psalmist is saying, look at our history. Learn from the past. Because God's going to save us in the future. And we're going to be confronted with these same temptations again. How are we going to get free of these temptations? The psalmist is saying, you need to rejoice in the Lord. You need to trust His promises. When you're confronted with temptation, you need, to, you need to say to yourself and believe in your heart, God is going to answer every yearning that my heart feels. God has promised to do good for me, and I am now going to rejoice in Him and hope in His promises. I'm going to put on glorying in the Lord. I'm going to put off fantasizing about evil. Um, Earlier, we saw in verses 6 through 12 about how they conquered uh, Egypt at the Red Sea. Now, in verses 34 through 46, we see how Canaan conquered Israel. Uh, Really, what the psalmist here is showing is the way that when, when you commit idolatry and sexual immorality, and, and when you think about what Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I'm going to worship you alone. Uh, and then he goes on to these requests. Give us this day our daily bread. I'm going to trust you for what I need for today. Israel's not doing that. They're assuming I'm not going to have what I need for the future. And, 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 and so it's not just illicit sex that can lead us into, into evil. It's not just desire for power that God has not given to us that will lead us into evil. It's desire for legitimate things that we don't trust the Lord about that led Israel into evil. And now verses 34 and 35 introduce their time in Canaan. And then we have this summary of their time in Canaan down through verse 46. They didn't destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. So when you don't worship the Lord and you don't obey his commands, you ruin your life. And now the psalmist is saying, you don't just ruin your life. You ruin the lives of those 
about whom you should care most. Because look what, look what comes after this, verse 36. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. And then verse 37, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their children, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Um, there are a lot of parents in the room this morning. You want to protect your children? You should abandon yourself to the worship of the living God. You should devote yourself to knowing God, to obeying the Lord, to walking with Him. That's the best way to protect your children. You want to guarantee the ruination of your children? Don't worship the Lord. Worship idols. Don't obey the Lord. Commit all these sins. Worry about your food. Be a power grabber. Get all the, the, the unrighteous sex you can get. You will ruin your life, and you will ruin the lives of your children. You may not sacrifice them to idols. You might have abortions. You might have children with devastated lives because their parents didn't stay married. There's all kinds of ways to ruin your kids' lives. And, and it all stems from refusing to worship the Lord. It all leads to idolatry that is polluting and spiritually adulterous. Look at verse 38 there. Or, sorry, verse 39. They became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. They were unfaithful to the Lord and they provoked God's wrath. The anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. He abhorred his heritage and gave them into the hand of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them and they were brought into subjection under their power. And the Lord is merciful in spite of all this. Verse 43, many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Let me encourage you to take that verse as a warning for your life and don't repeat it. Don't be somebody that you can look at your life and you can say over and over in my life, the Lord has delivered me from my sin. And every time what I did, I was rebellious in my purposes and brought lower through my iniquity. He delivered me, and I just kept sinning and made it worse. Take that verse as a warning. Learn from Israel's failure. Look at how merciful God is in verse 44. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. They're crying out to the Lord. Verse 45, for their sake he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. This is important language. He remembered the covenant with Abraham and then Exodus 32, when he said he was going to destroy them and start over with Moses, Moses intercedes, he relents of his wrath. Numbers 14, he says he's going to destroy them, start over with Moses. Moses intercedes, he relents of his wrath. He relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Verse 46, he caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. This is the kind of thing that leads to their deliver deliverance and their return to the land. And that brings us around to the psalmist's plea for salvation and his call for praise. Let me conclude with four thoughts here in response to Psalm 106, which depicts idolatry and unbelief right in the middle, surrounded by wicked cravings for food, power, sex, and water. You see that in the structure of this psalm? Idolatry and unbelief, verses 19 through 23, verses 24 through 27. And then on every side of that, 
all around that come these wicked cravings. Here's four, four things in response. Number one, make your life's ambition to know God. Set it in your heart that everything you want to be about is walking with and knowing the God of the Bible and being a worshiper of this God. Number two, this is really just the alternative, the opposite of that. Don't make the exchange. The Romans 1, 23 ex- exchange, I think Paul is really uh, responding to or maybe engaging Psalm 106, 20. Psalm 106, 20, I think, lies in the back of Psalm's mind in Romans 1, 23 when he talks about how they exchanged uh, God for these idols. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. Don't make that bad bargain. Don't get sucked into that rip-off deal. Make your life about knowing God, number one. Number two, don't make that bad exchange, that Romans one twenty three exchange. Number three, um, fix your eyes on Jesus, the one who fulfills the pattern of Moses and Phineas in this psalm, standing in the breach, turning away God's wrath. He is our Savior. And, and if you're here this morning and you, you want to know what Christianity is about, Christianity is about worshiping God uh, beca- and, and being enabled to worship God because of what Jesus has done for us. And we place our faith and hope in Him, and we turn away from idolatry and unbelief, and we trust the living God, and we hope fully in the chosen one. That's number four. Not only is Jesus the fulfillment of the pattern of Moses and Phineas in this psalm, He's also the chosen one. Verse 23, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him, how much more can we say that about Jesus? Had not Jesus, the chosen one, stood in the breach to turn away God's wrath, we would have been destroyed. If we settle for anything less than the living God, we destroy ourselves with polluting, perverting practices And we enslave ourselves to merciless idols that will only punish, never save, never satisfy. Let's pray. Father, would you make us those who worship you? Would you make us those who, when we lie in our beds at night, we don't think about ways to get money that are unlawful or unrighteous. We don't think about ways that, are, that we could take advantage of people and use them for our sexual gratification. We don't think about ways that we could climb ladders and step on people's backs and seize power. We don't think about ways that we can guarantee even our daily bread and the water that we need. Lord, make us people who rejoice in you. Make us people who, even when we can't see how you're going to provide, even when we can't see how you're going to meet the needs that we have, the urges that we feel, we exult in you because we believe that you're good. And we believe that you will come through for your people. Lord, make us those who worship you and save us, we pray. Gather us in from the nations. Send the Lord Jesus to lead us all the way to the land of promise and help us to be those who will worship you in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and new earth, we ask in his name. Amen.